Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So you might ask yourself, as we're going through this doctrinal study, as we're looking at the doctrines of grace, we have landed on limited atonement, and you might be thinking, but yeah, isn't that really a fairly esoteric point of doctrine to spend so much time on and to concentrate on so much? I mean, it's not really that important that we understand it, is it? I mean, after all, as long as we know that Jesus died, and like we sang, and that he died for me, isn't that sufficient? Why would you spend the amount of time that you're spending and that the church has spent for, well, the last 2,000 years defining doctrine, especially since the Synod of Dort? Why would there be this amount of concentration on limited atonement? Why would you argue about the particularity of the atonement? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning because there is no other event in human history that defines Christianity as much as the death, resurrection of Christ. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ lays at the very center of everything we believe. It is the single most important part of Christianity. In fact, Paul argues that if you take away the resurrection, then Christianity is foolish. It's vain. You're still in your sin. You're going to die and stand before God with nothing that you can plead. So your only hope is in this life. Live it up. Enjoy it. Because when you die, you have no hope if there is no resurrection. I would extend that out to if there was no sacrificial death and resurrection, then you don't have Christianity. It is one of the essential differences between Christianity and every other organized religion on the planet that you actually have a fully sufficient sacrifice done by someone other than yourself. And that's one of the most unique characteristics of Christianity. And so looking into and talking about what Christ actually accomplished on the cross seems essential to me. To me, it doesn't seem like a, uh, an esoteric idea. To me, it doesn't seem like something you can either take or leave. It seems essential that if we're going to understand Christianity correctly, and if we're going to understand what we believe and why we believe it, then it's necessary for us to understand what Christ was accomplishing in his death, burial, and resurrection. Once you look closely at what Christ actually accomplished, then it becomes impossible to conclude that he could possibly have died for everybody. Now, you can postulate in a sort of vague, generalized way that Christ gave his life for every sin of every person, which is the way it's standardly taught. And you can say that in a big generalized way as long as you don't give it any thought. (laughs) 
But as soon as you start thinking about and reading about and paying attention to what the Bible says Christ actually did, then particular atonement becomes obvious. It becomes unavoidable. It becomes axiomatic. It does prove itself. Now, as I said last week, everybody across the board limits the atonement in some way. That phrase, limited atonement, some people find it objectionable. Who are you to limit the atonement? It just sounds unchristian-like, unloving to say that Christ only died for particular people. Fairness would be that he died for everybody and that everybody gets an equal chance to be saved. All they have to do is exercise some faith in Christ and then the atonement can be activated on their behalf. But even as you say that, even as you look at that theology, which I think we've all heard, soon as you say that, you have limited the atonement. The Arminian limitation is that Christ died for everybody, didn't actually save anybody, but then human beings have to activate that atonement in order to make it effective for themselves. And you activate that by you coming to faith, by you deciding to make Jesus Lord and Savior, by you doing something. So in other words, it is a combination of Christ doing his work, which is not truly a finished work, he simply did everything he could do, then you come along afterwards and do the rest of it. You activate it in some way. So that is limiting the atonement just as much as we limit the atonement. The difference is we say that Jesus actually paid fully and completely for all the sin debt of those people for whom he died so that he actually saved people in his death, burial, and resurrection. But our limitation is, but he didn't do that for everybody as evidenced by the fact that not everybody gets saved. And since the Bible says that not everybody gets saved, since Jesus himself spoke to the Pharisees about a sin that was never going to be forgiven in this age or the age to come, then it's obvious as you read through the Bible that there are some people who don't get saved. The very fact that hell exists, the very fact that Jesus spoke of outer darkness, worm never sleeps, fires never quenched, all of that language indicates that some people are going to fall under God's judgment. Therefore, Jesus could not have paid their entire sin debt for them so we see the limitation as a limitation in Jesus dying for particular people, whereas the Arminian would say it's for all people, but it's limited in its effectiveness. We say it's only limited in its scope. We say it's fully effective. It's just not fully effective for everyone. The Arminian says... He died for everyone, you make it effective. So they limit it in its effect. The way that I've explained it is the Arminians have a bridge. It's a big, wide bridge. 
Everybody who wants to can get onto that bridge. It's the bridge to heaven, and it's a great big wide bridge. The problem is it only gets you halfway there, and then the bridge just stops. And you have to actively do the work of building the other half of that bridge in order to get you to heaven. Whereas we say that it's a fully completed bridge, fully effective bridge. If you're on that bridge, it gets you all the way to heaven. The problem is it's a narrow bridge. Hmm. Narrow is the way. Not everybody finds it. That broad bridge that I use to describe the Arminians is very much like Jesus' language that broad is the way and wide is the gate. Not that leads to heaven, but the gate that leads to destruction. Many there are that go in that way. But narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life, and few there be that find it. Those are Jesus' words. So even in his language of salvation and ultimate destruction, he narrowed the field and said only few ever find that pathway to everlasting life which I liken to a completely effective, fully built bridge. Cross that bridge, heaven is yours forever, as opposed to a wide bridge that everybody can get on. I'm beating this analogy to death now. A wide bridge that everybody can get on, but you got to build the other half of it. Halfway across, it just stops. I heard a preacher one time give an altar call in which he said, Jesus has done everything he can do. Now it's up to you to take that step, make a profession, come forward. So that language of Jesus has done everything he can do is pervasive in the church, but you don't find it in the Bible. Instead, what you find is Jesus has done everything that was necessary to do. It wasn't a question of can Here's a reality all the way through the Bible. God never tried anything. Jesus never tried to save some people. He did save people. That's what he did. Now, when he was on the cross, you've all heard and read the last words that he spoke on the cross. One of the last things that he said prior to saying, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. One of the things he said was, it's finished. Mm. To telestai. It's finished. It's accomplished. And the Bible says that, that Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, the things that he had come to do were now wrapping up. The time had come. The particular Passover had come. In the calendar of God, this moment had come. And one of the last things that he announced was, it's finished. What I came to do is now complete. It's wrapped up. So if it's accomplished, what is accomplished? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, these things that I'm going to go through and tell you these things are accomplished. In my book, By Grace Alone, in the chapter on limited atonement, I went through these. Because I believe that if you just look at these eight things that the Bible says Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, and then I'm going to give you biblical evidence that says this is something Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. 
And once you look at those, it's impossible for you to conclude that he died for everybody. Because if he died for everybody, then he accomplished these eight things for everybody that he died for. So the more that you understand the things he accomplished, the more you're going to understand that it had to be particular. Got it? Got it. Okay. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to look at comes directly from Hebrews 9, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 9, verses 24 to 26, tell us that Jesus became the ultimate, final, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. For 1,400 years, the Jews had been sacrificing animals on a very regular basis, all the way from Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when there are particular sacrifices, down to yearly Sabbath sacrifices, down to weekly Sabbath sacrifices, down to high day sacrifices, down to every Sabbath sacrifices, just sacrifice, 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 blood, blood, blood. The blood that poured out of the temple was a continual element of the temple because sacrifice was mandatory on an ongoing basis. And the reason for the continual sacrifice of sin offerings was because of the continuation of sin within Israel. Israel still sinned, so they still had to sacrifice animals. The writer of Hebrews argues that if any of those animal sacrifices had actually accomplished the full expiation of sin, then they would have stopped doing the sacrifices because there it accomplished it. It actually took care of the sin problem in Israel. But as Israel continued in their constant daily sin as they walked in this sinful world in their sinful flesh there had to be continual sacrifice right up until Christ which is why I emphasize that he is the ultimate he's the final one the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin that's one of the things that he was accomplishing on the cross no more animal sacrifice that's why we at GCA are not out in the parking lot killing chickens. It's why we're not doing animal sacrifice. It's not necessary anymore because Christ was the final substitutionary sacrifice. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 24, says that. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. In other words, as I told you, the holiest place was inside the temple and you could only go in there once a year. You could only go in there if you were the high priest. If you were the high priest and you were properly dressed the way God said you had to be dressed and you had the appropriate sacrifice in your hands, then you could go into the holy place. But that holiest place was made with the hands of men. God described it to Moses in detail and then Moses and the Israelites built it But that was a type and a figure, a foreshadow of the holiest place in heaven. And just as the high priest would enter in once a year into the holiest place with sacrificial blood, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, 
Christ entered into the holiest place, not that one made with hands, but the holiest place in heaven, and the sacrificial blood that he brought was his own. So that makes it the final sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 24 again. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are figures, types of the true holiest place. He's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. I love the two words for us. He didn't just do it for himself. He sacrificed himself for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holiest place every year with the blood of others. As I just said, they had to keep sacrificing. They had to keep doing it year after year after year, day after day, week after week, high day after high day, Sabbath after Sabbath. They had to keep sacrificing because Israel continued in their sin and the animals never took away that sin. But Christ, I keep emphasizing, was the final sacrifice, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, and he didn't have to do it again. He was the final one. He didn't do it year after year. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, if that one sacrifice didn't do it, didn't accomplish it, then he would have had to come often and keep doing it, which would have necessitated him coming to the planet often and sacrificing himself often. But he came to the planet once. He sacrificed himself once because that was the final sacrifice. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It doesn't get much clearer than that. He put away sin. He did away with it. He paid the sacrificial price in order to redeem all his people. Now, if he died for everybody, it's axiomatic then that he put away sin for absolutely everybody. Sin is no longer an issue for anybody. Well, that's impossible, though, because there are still people who are going to be judged for their sin. There are still people who are going to be accountable for their sin. And this would be directly opposite of Jesus saying, that sin will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come, that sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the so-called unforgivable sin. Jesus himself identified sin that was not going to ever be forgiven, but then he went to the cross and put away all sin for everybody? See, now you've got a contradiction, and the Bible does not contradict itself. So my point is, he is the ultimate, final, substitutionary sacrifice for sin, just like all those animals were types and shadows that pointed forward to him, just like the high priest going into the holiest place every year was a type and a shadow that pointed to him. It all culminated in him, and when he was on the cross saying, it is finished, what was finished was the final substitutionary sacrifice. Hebrews 10 then 
starting at verse 11, says, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Oftentimes, over and over, he's sacrificing the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of birds. He's sacrificing the same thing over and over and over. And those sacrifices can never take away sins. As I just said, if they ever did, they would have stopped doing it. They would have said, okay, that did it. We've wrapped up the sin problem. Every cow up until now was not sufficient, but doggone, this was a good cow. And so when we killed him, that solved the sin issue for us. That never occurred because the animals could never take away sin. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And just so you don't think that the position of sitting down at the right hand of God was just something that the writer of Hebrews was throwing in almost parenthetically, that's a really, really important detail he's added there. Because when you go into the tabernacle in the wilderness, or when you go into the the sacrificial part of the temple, there's no furniture for sitting. There's a lot of other furniture. There's a laver of cleansing, and there's a table of showbread, and there's an altar, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's all this furniture, but there's no place to sit down. When God described the items that had to be in the tabernacle, he did not include a stool. He did not include a comfy chair. He didn't include any place to sit because the work was never done. When you were in the temple, when you were in the holiest place, you were there to do the work. And then you had to come back again and do it again. And come back again and do it again. But Christ, when he did it once, the writer of Hebrews, to emphasize the singularity of that sacrifice, said it happened once, and then he sat down, which is unlike any of the former high priests, any of the workers in the temple, in the tabernacle. They were never allowed to say, okay, I've accomplished it, it's finished, I'm going to sit. But Christ sat. So clearly all the details tell us that Christ was the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Number two, in describing the death of Christ, Paul refers to him as the propitiation for our sin. That propitiation word actually predates Christianity. The idea behind propitiation is appeasing the wrath of a god. You may recall in the Old Testament, there were restrictions against, like the fires of Molech, or making your children pass through the fire. That's the particular language. They believed that that was going to appease the wrath of the gods. And so when early heathen men would see natural disaster or plague or sickness, they would think that the gods had brought that upon them because they were angry at them in some way. And so then in order to appease the wrath, they would sacrifice 
like their children to the burning arms of Molech, and they believed that the cries and screams of the burning children would satiate the desire of the god who would then relent and would stop being angry at them. Okay, well, Paul picks up that concept of appeasing the wrath of God and says that's what Jesus did. The real Jesus really came to the real planet, actually died and raised again, and actually appeased the wrath of the real God on our behalf. He actually did do it. So he took a concept that people were generally familiar with and then applied it to Christ to say, that's what Jesus actually did. Romans 3.25, you see it. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That would be his sacrifice. Whenever you see Paul use that language in his blood, it's a direct reference to the sacrifice of Christ, Christ on the, on the cross. So Christ on the cross was a propitiation to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, we don't have time to kind of drill down on that, and we did talk about it at more length when we were teaching through the book of Romans, but clearly what Paul is saying here is, in the past, Israel was allowed to sacrifice animals to cover their sin, but it didn't propitiate, and it didn't remove the sin, it just simply covered the sin. But then Christ, being a propitiation against the wrath of God, declares the righteousness of God so that there's actual remission of the sins that were already past. The sins of the 1,400 years of Israel sacrificing animals, those animals can't take away sin, but then the single sacrifice of Christ did remit the sins of Israel that were covered by the animals. That's really deep theology, but it's what Paul's declaring here. Through the forbearance, through the patience of God. So in other words, God, knowing that he was going to send Christ, knowing that Christ was going to be the final sacrifice for sin, was then really patient with the sins of Israel for 1,400 years as they sacrificed animals, knowing that the ultimate payment was coming. The word right there is hilasterion. Might be hilasterios. It's the word, by the way, that is translated in other places in the New Testament, especially in the King James, as mercy seat. The mercy seat is the covering on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so Paul refers to Christ in that propitiation of God as being the one, being the place to satisfy God the same way that pouring sacrificial blood on the Capareth used to abate the wrath of God. And so Paul refers to him as the mercy seat. In 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we loved God. By the way, we just sang about that. That wasn't a mistake. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. 
And the demonstration of his love for us is that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that should tell you two really important things. By the way, right here, the word translated propitiation is a different Greek word. This time it's halasmas, which means to be an expiator, to do away with sin. Since we read that God sent his son to be a propitiation, to appease the wrath of God, that tells you two really important things. Number one, it tells you that your sinfulness deserves God's wrath. And there was no way for you to get out from under the wrath of God. There was nothing you were going to do. There was nothing you could stir up within yourself that would satisfy God to the point where you would appease his wrath. So his anger, his wrath is against the sinful world always. But then Christ came to be the necessary propitiation to remove that wrath and satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. So we don't have to fear the wrath of God, which is why Paul would also write that we're not appointed to wrath. Right. We who are in Christ are appointed for eternal glory so that we can be there to worship God, to behold the splendor of Christ. All of that is what we're appointed to. We're not appointed to wrath. But the only way that we changed our condition from being under the wrath of God to being not appointed to wrath was because Christ himself became our propitiation. Mm. See the difference? Okay, now that's two things that the Bible clearly says Christ did. By the way, if Christ propitiated the wrath for everybody on the planet, whoever lived without distinction, then how can God pour out his wrath toward anybody? The book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, any of those books that talk about God pouring out wrath on people can't be true. Mm. So, again, you have to see distinction. You have to see particularity. Okay, so number three, we're moving on. Christ is said to have redeemed fallen sinners by his death. The Greek word that is translated redemption is exegorazo, which actually means to buy out. It's a word that was used when uh, you'd go to a slave market to buy a slave. Okay, well, that's that word that Paul picked up. Again, a word that people would know. They would just culturally understand that word, and he applied it to Christ and said, that's what Christ did. I don't know if he snapped his fingers when he said it. But, but that's what he did. He said, yeah, that's what Christ did. You were on the slave market to sin because you were sold out to sin. That's our natural situation. The Bible says, like John 8, 34, it says that we are the bond slave to sin. So if we are in bondage to sin, and if the wages of sin is death, then there's nothing we can do to satisfy God so that he would release us from that slavery, from that bondage. And our sins needed to be remitted in order for us to stand before God and not fry. 
but without the shedding of blood, says Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So since we're bond slaves on the slave market of sin, we need somebody to buy us out. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Bible says Christ did. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the buying out that is in Christ Jesus. The word there is redemption. I just use the term buying out because that's the definition of the word. All of us have sinned. That means all of us are guilty. All of us are waiting for the wrath of God. But then we were justified. How? We'll get to justification in a moment. We were justified by the finished work of Christ, and we were justified freely by his grace. The combination of the words freely and by grace are just overwhelming. Just in case you think there's something you've got to add to it. The combination of words that Paul used is you're justified freely by his grace. How? Through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Through him buying you off the slave market of sin and taking you to himself. Hebrews 9.12 says, Neither the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place, having obtained redemption for us. But the writer of Hebrews added an adjective to it. What kind of redemption did he buy for us? Eternal redemption for us. In other words, once he bought us out of the slave market of sin, we can never be enslaved again. Thank God. Yeah, he bought us out permanently. So we now belong to him permanently. So what he accomplished on the cross in redeeming, in buying out his people is a done deal. If you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. And since he did it freely and by grace, you can't mess it up. Because it wasn't up to you to begin with. Okay, so is that satisfactory to prove that Christ was our redeemer on the cross? In the same manner that I've been describing Christ as our redemption, the Bible also says that he was the ransom that was paid for guilty sinners. Again, Paul picking up real common language. If somebody kidnapped your child... In order to get the kid back, you got to pay a ransom usually. You get a ransom letter. They want a ransom. They want some payment in order to release the person that they've taken. In the same way, sin has taken us. So Christ paid with his blood, by his sacrifice, he paid the required ransom price to release us. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Matthew records that Jesus' own death was meant to be sufficient payment so that we could then be freed from the sin that enslaved us so that we then could belong to him and he could take us to his eternal home. 
He paid the ransom, and the ransom he paid was his body on the cross. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 picks up that idea. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And don't let that word all, by the way, upset you. Remember that Paul is writing to Timothy, and he is talking about the fact that now Gentiles are included in the ransom price that Christ paid. Everyone who comes to Christ is then included in the all. So don't think that he's preaching suddenly, uh, preaching universal atonement. That's not the case. Even though people will try to twist it into that. So you take those two, that Christ was our eternal redemption and that he was our ransom, and you get the language of freedom. We are freed because of the finished work of Christ. Is that satisfactory for number four then? Do you see that the Bible actually does say that when Christ died, he paid a ransom in order to buy us? Number five then. Christ was on the cross making reconciliation between man and God. Last week, I talked to you about the history of the word atonement, at one meant. He brought two people at one. Part of that concept is that Christ made reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and man was impossible as long as God in his righteous holiness could not bend, could not lower his standard at all, and man was completely enslaved to his sin, then there's no way that those two entities are going to be reconciled with one another. There's no way for us to get along with God or to spend time in the presence of God because our sin naturally keeps us away from the God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches. So even the language describing us and describing God shows this distance between us. How are you going to get those two warring parties together again? Paul and the writer of Hebrews says that's what Christ did. He accomplished reconciliation between sinful man and holy God. Hebrews 2, 1 and 7 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So the way that he reconciled holy God with sinful man was to pay the price for sinful man, to remove the sin debt from sinful man, to ultimately redeem and justify sinful man. And in that way, God doesn't change, the state of man changed. Mm. So that we're able then to be one with God. And we can be reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. That's a very important concept. So much of modern-day Christianity says 
that in order for you to be reconciled with God, since most Christian denominations do admit that man is inherently sinful, they then think that the way to create the reconciliation is for you to get busy, just work harder, and then God will accept you and there will be reconciliation based on you becoming slightly better than you were before. But you'll notice that Paul's language is always the reconciling work was done by God. And how did he accomplish it? He reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus. That's how he did it. Through the intermediary agency of Christ and Christ's finished work. And he has given then to us the ministry of reconciliation, to which that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us that word of reconciliation. So that becomes an essential ingredient of Pauline Christianity, that we are calling men to be reconciled to their God, and the way that they can be reconciled is through Christ. So we call men to Christ in order to reconcile them with God. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, notice how clear this statement is, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Okay, you can't get any more plain than that. Christ on the cross, in his death, reconciled Sinners to God, who were enemies, notice. It's not that we were doing slightly better. It's not that we had cleaned ourselves up in order to accomplish reconciliation. Instead, what it was is we were enemies, and while we were enemies, we were then reconciled to God by the death of his son, and so much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words... He died to accomplish our reconciliation, but the fact that he got up again is the guarantee of our salvation. Our eternal salvation, our undying salvation, is wrapped up in the evidence that Christ got up from the grave again. So he accomplished reconciliation in his death. He accomplished eternal salvation in his resurrection. You got that? Got it, sir. Okay. So then we can move on to number six. Number six, as I've referenced a couple of times, is that by his death, Christ actually justified guilty people. That's a legal term, by the way. That's a term, again, that Paul used that was commonly used in the courts of law. I'm I'm talking George's language now. In the courts of law, if someone was held personally innocent, that was that concept of justification, to be held guiltless. And so Paul picks up that terminology and says, that's what Jesus did for us. We are incredibly guilty. It's hard to find words that can adequately explain how guilty we are. In fact, I argue repeatedly that part of our sinfulness is that we can't comprehend how truly sinful we are. We can't comprehend the absolute holiness of God 
And because we can't comprehend how high and separate and righteous and holy he is, we can't comprehend how much we have offended him. Well, then God, through Christ, holds us as personally innocent, Mm. despite our guilt. That's what justification is. Let's see if I wrote anything here that matters. Well, yes. Okay, it turns out there's one thing I wrote here that actually is worth throwing in. (laughs) This concept of justification does not mean that we, the elect, are necessarily made perfect in and of ourselves. In other words, we're still walking on this sinful planet in this sinful flesh. So we are not personally perfected. Instead, we are held as guiltless. Here, we'll ask the attorney. George, have you ever been in a case in court where you knew somebody was guilty, dead to rights, guilty, and yet they walked free? Yes, well, I don't do criminal defense work. But I have... Well, then let's ask Leon. So then... Certainly there have been many criminal cases like that. Yeah. Even in the civil world, if you want to use, you know, liable and not liable (coughs) rather than guilty and innocent. Yeah. I've seen many cases in which a person who was liable was not held... Was not held responsible. responsible. Yeah. That's the idea here. We are still in and of ourselves, on a regular basis, guilty. But in the court of heaven, we're held as personally innocent. Mm. We are declared by God to be justified. That justification, then, that Christ has proffered for us is then imputed to us, which is why I'm stressing that it doesn't mean we become personally so good, righteous, and holy that God is then going to accept us on the basis of our goodness and our righteousness and our holiness. What it is is that righteousness, Christ's own perfect righteousness, is imputed to our account so that we become held as personally innocent. Um, I just used the word imputed. So for anybody who doesn't know, there are three great imputations in the Bible. And the first of them is Adam sinned, and his sin is then accredited to every human being. So that's why the minute you're born, you're already a sinner. Mm. And even though that seems unfair, and even though people argue, well, that, that's not fair. I didn't get a chance to give it a shot. How come I'm held guilty because of something someone else did? Well, if you don't think that's fair, then wait till the next imputation because the next imputation is that the sins of all God's people are then placed on Christ at Calvary imputing their guilt to him so that when he died under the wrath of God, God was extracting that payment as Christ became the ransom price that was paid for our sin debt. So, If you thought that the first imputation was unfair because you were reckoned to be a sinner because of something someone else did, well, then you also got to say that Christ dying for you was equally unfair because you were justified based on something someone else did. 
Instead, you should really like the imputations. Even though God imputed Adam's sin to your account, he imputed Christ's righteousness to your account. That's the third great imputation, is that Christ's personal righteousness, since you don't have a personal righteousness, Christ's righteousness is then imputed to you. And that's the reason that God can then hold you as personally innocent in the court of heaven. All right, so let's look at a couple verses that actually say that Christ was the justification. This concept, this idea was so important that even Isaiah, in writing about Messiah to come, one of the things that Isaiah said Messiah was going to do was that he was going to accomplish justification. Isaiah 53.11 says, God will see the travail of Christ's soul. Actually, it just says, he shall see the travail of his soul. I added the pronouns so you would understand. God will see the travail of Christ's soul, and God will be satisfied by what Christ does. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. So there you've also got the imputation of the sinfulness, the guilt of all God's people that is imputed to Christ because he bears their iniquities even though he is personally innocent. He's not the sinner. We are. Our sinfulness is imputed to him. He dies and pays the price for that sinfulness and as a result, he justifies the many. You pick it up in Acts 13, verse 38, it says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. We're so familiar with that phrase, I think. We've just said that so often. The forgiveness of sin. Christ, the forgiveness of sin. Think about that seriously for a moment. Let the depth of that get down into you. We're talking about Everything that is depraved, wretched humans being forgiven. That's all part of that justifying work that Christ accomplished. That none of your sin debt is going to be held against you when it comes time for your judgment. This is like the best news, but we're so used to hearing it. You know, Jesus forgave our sins. You say it in your, in your prayers, you know, please forgive us our sins. This is the, the quintessential part of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ is that Christ forgave you for everything that is you, for everything you do, for how you think, for all your missed opportunities. Everything that makes up wretched, little, measly, wormy you, he forgave it. Unto you is preached the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by Christ, all that believe are justified, and I love the next words, from all things. All things, because we so easily think, yeah, but that, that one thing, <laughs> that one time I did that one thing, that wow, wow, how could I, yeah, if God saw that, I mean, gee, how did I get away with that? All things justified from all 
things. There's no sin that you have performed in this lifetime that God didn't see coming. He didn't know that you were going to do it. He understood everything that made up the depravity of human nature. And nevertheless, he forgave you utterly and completely and made you just. Made you just like Christ. Made you righteous in his own eyes, in his own court, by declaring you guiltless. And he justified us from all things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul there is saying the law of Moses was do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. But in the doing of the stuff, they never accomplished actual justification. But Christ, by his single sacrifice, actually accomplished the justification that 1,400 years of do stuff couldn't accomplish. Mm. By the way, that word right there, justified, is dikaiu, whoa. There's a diphthong at the end that I'm not good at. Jeff can do diphthongs better than I can, which is a strange compliment. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but that word means to render someone as just or innocent or free. Uh, in fact, that root word, DK, uh, the Greeks even had a god, DK, the, uh, the god of justice. And so that concept was familiar in Greek culture. And so Paul picked up that concept, that idea of justice, and said that's what Christ accomplished for us. He accomplished our justice, our righteousness before God in his finished work. Okay, so then number seven. Christ sanctified those justified ones, which means, as you know, that he set them apart. The root word there is hagios. That's the word for holy. When you say God is holy, what you mean is he's separate from us. He's separate from sinners. He's distinct and unique from us. And so the root word Hagiazo, for this word sanctified, means that Christ has made us holy so that we can stand before God and not be judged and not fear the judgment of God. Hebrews 10.10 says that exact thing. By the which will, he's speaking of God's will, by the will of God, we are Sanctified, separated, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it's clear that it was accomplished on the cross because it was through the body of Jesus, through the offering, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it was only done, as we've already said, once. And it was done once for all time and once for all sin. And once for all the things that Christ came to accomplish. He only had to do it once, and it was fully effective in sanctifying, separating the people of God. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he that sanctifies, that would be Christ, and they who are sanctified, that would be us, are all of one. There's that unity with Christ thing. And it is our unity with Christ that makes it okay for us before God. 
before the judgment of God, before the holiness of God, before the, the light that no man approaches. We have no fear of that. Instead, we run to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father, because we are one with Christ. He that sanctifies. I want to emphasize that phrase just so you understand that Paul then refers to him as the one that does the sanctifying. We don't do it. It doesn't matter how hard you work at you. Even if you follow what the Bible says about mortification, and the Bible does teach mortification, that you mortify the sins of your flesh. You put them to death. You don't walk the way you used to walk. You walk differently. But if you think that that gradual improvement of yourself in this lifetime that you're doing by your own power, if you think that that's somehow getting you more righteous or more holy, then you don't really understand the finished sanctifying work of Christ. In fact, you'd have to say it's not really finished. You have to do the rest of it. Mm. He got you mostly holy, but you got to do the rest of the holiness part. Instead, he's the one that sanctifies. We're the ones who are sanctified. We are all one for which cause he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's willing to call us family members because he has made us like him. That should take you back to Paul writing in Romans and saying that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And part of that being conformed into Christ's image is that he is sanctified, therefore he makes us sanctified. And we are one with him. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, In talking about our sinfulness a moment ago, I said that we exercise mortification. We are called to walk differently than the world. And so in talking about the way that some people used to be sinners, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you are washed. And the next characteristic he points out is, but you are sanctified. You are separated. And he's talking about people who had engaged in all kinds of evil previously. And then he says, and that was some of you. You were wretched, sinful people. But now you're different. Now you're sanctified. But you are justified. Boy, he's just putting all this language together. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So the finished work of Christ actually accomplished our separation, our sanctification. And then my favorite of all of these eight points. Number eight is in sanctifying some people, the Bible says Christ actually perfected them. He actually completed them, which is what the word means. And if you are complete in your standing before God, in your being bought off the slave market of sin, if you are redeemed utterly, if the price has been paid for you and you are now perfected in Christ, then what else is there for you to pay? What else do you do if in Christ you're perfect? Hebrews 10:14. If you can't quote this, go home and memorize it. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. This is a verse that will 
Every time you think, how could I possibly be saved? Or every time you think, the world is insane. Every time you think, my life makes no sense. Just repeat this verse to yourself until you get it. For by one offering, okay, we're talking about Christ on the cross. What did he accomplish on the cross? When he said, it is finished, what was finished? For by one offering, he perfected, and then I like the qualifier after it, he perfected forever. So you're not just complete, you're complete forever. And he perfected forever all those that he sanctified. So all those that he separated to God, all those that are separate from the world by his finished work, all of those people are complete in the finished work of Christ. They don't need to add anything. And that completion, that perfection is a forever thing. And by the way, Christ who is from eternity past to eternity future knows what forever means. He doesn't use the word lightly. He understands eternality. And when the eternal one speaks of eternality, he's speaking way above our collective pay grade because we are all just residents of planet Earth and we only know this mortal lifetime that has an ending. And it has a beginning. We were born at some point and we were here on the planet where billions of other people have been but as far as we're concerned, history began with the day we were born. And then we live our life, then we die, and we're gone. So we really can't conceive of eternal. It's really hard for us to get a hold of eternal. So therefore, if this was just somebody who was like us, another human on the planet, somebody who was limited while they were living here on the planet, if they spoke of Forever, which we do. We say stuff like, I'll love you forever. I've had people say that to me who don't love me now. You get the picture? That's because human beings don't understand forever. But when Jesus, the eternal one, says you're perfected forever, then that's real foreverness. <laughs> That's genuine eternality. That's someone who does not change saying, because I don't change, I'm not going to change my response to you. No matter what you do, I love you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. That goes all the way back to Jeremiah 31.3. This language of eternal love, eternal forgiveness, eternal sanctification, perfected forever, this is how God alone can talk because he's the only one who inhabits eternity and has always experienced and only experienced eternality. So he can talk about foreverness and he took the time to say that the perfection that was rendered by Christ on the cross is forever, which is why it only has to be done once because it's a forever thing. It's Done. Okay, so let's summarize. By my watch, I still have four minutes. So that clock's fast. 
Let's summarize then. Here's what we've agreed to. The Bible plainly teaches us that on the cross, Christ was the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He was the propitiation that satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the redemption price to purchase guilty sinners. He was the ransom price that was paid. He made reconciliation between God and man. He justified guilty sinners, satisfying God's holy justice. He sanctified those people, setting them apart as holy. And he perfected forever those that he bought and justified and sanctified. Now, if that's all true, and we've proved it from the Bible, and I hope have proved it adequately from the Bible, if that's all true, then limited atonement is a foregone conclusion. Because Jesus didn't, if he died for the world, he didn't just die for them. He did all eight of those things for them. And so then you have to explain how people who have those gifts from God accredited to them, how does God then judge them considering they're perfected forever? How does God then judge them? They've already been justified. They've already been sanctified. They've already been righteousified. Well, if that's the case and they stand before God with all of that imputed to their account, how does God judge anybody? So at that point, once you look closely at what the Bible says Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, you've only got two choices. One choice is universal atonement. And if you can find even one example in the Bible of anybody being judged, then universal atonement can't be true. And you can find examples of people being judged. So, so then universal atonement can't be true. Well, then the only other option is Jesus died for particular people and then accredited them with all that finished work that he accomplished on the cross. When he said it was finished, it was actually done and accomplished, and therefore those people who he died to save are fully, completely, utterly sanctified, set apart, justified, redeemed, saved, just saved as a result of what Christ did. And that's why when I began this morning, I asked but isn't this limited atonement thing really just kind of an esoteric argument? Why would we bother to think about that? I think now you see why. It lays at the very heart and soul of what did Jesus actually do? If you just generalize Jesus on the cross and say, well, he died for everyone, but you're not understanding what he did on the cross, then you still don't understand biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is very precise about what Jesus actually accomplished. And for us who have been saved by the finished work of Christ, all of that stuff that he actually did is incredibly good news. Because then we know he did it. We don't have to do it. He did it. And during those days that I was being taught a God who tried to do things. Jesus did everything he could do. 
during those days I really didn't understand the necessity of worshiping a God who was still trying to do stuff I'm trying to do stuff he's trying to do stuff he should worship me I, I really couldn't see why I should worship a God like that but once you look at what Christ actually did on the cross like we did this morning and if you understand and fully embraced the finished work of Christ well then you have no trouble getting on your face in front of him That's right. you have no trouble saying all the glory all the worship belongs to you because it does by virtue of the fact that he's the only actor in this entire scenario you are the one who was graciously acted upon and therefore worship him does that make sense Amen. Yes, sir. all right questions it's pretty clear <laughs> <laughs> it's all right there in the bible you just got to go pick it out and go well there there it is and once you get it it's really freeing because you'll stop thinking man I'm just not good enough or man that time I did that thing or or oh no someday I might do that thing again it's just really good to know it's finished to tell a is a really important word it's finished yes Micah the, uh, the doctrine of limited atonement particular redemption uh, like you were saying is all throughout the Bible we read it this morning when um, Jeff brought up the Psalm 136 and we read uh, that um, he struck down the firstborn of Egypt and his loving kindness endured forever. So that's a demonstration of his yeah. loving kindness. If we go back and look at that, we had the firstborn of Egypt that was struck down, and yet the firstborn uh, of the Israelites was passed over because of the, uh, the lamb, the blood of the lamb that yeah. was spread on the doorpost. That's a wonderful picture of yeah. a particular redemption and limited atonement right there. So it goes all Absolutely. The way yeah, no question about it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.